Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, we turn today to a topic that has been getting a lot of notoriety in the political environment of late. Um, the term being passed around at the moment is tribalism. Lately, we hear that a lot in the context of, of partisanship, of people sort of closing ranks based on their political beliefs. But you wrote about it in a recent column for Defining Ideas, more in the context of identity politics, of people who define themselves by their demographic traits, whether that's race or gender or sexual orientation. And the opening sentence of that piece was, tribalism is one of history's greatest destroyers. Explain what you mean by that. Well, most nations or states had more difficulty trying to unify peoples who didn't look superficially alike. To the naked eye, they either had different genders or they were of different races or ethnic backgrounds. And then when you add in different languages or cultures, it made it even more difficult. And so only a particular few societies in history did it. And usually whether it was the Ottomans or the Persian Empire or the Soviet Empire, they had to use a degree of coercion that could be pretty brutal. The United States was the exception, and that is that the theory of the Constitution, all men are created equal and due process under the law and no national religion, et cetera, et cetera, is that even though it was settled by an original group of British and then Northern Europeans, the logic was that anybody could be an American. And I think that came to full fruition in the 21st century. But whether it's Japan or Mexico or South Korea or Kenya or Nigeria, that these are the, the norms. And that means that you or I or a normal American citizen could not go to those countries and then become a naturalized citizen and expect to be treated equally with others who did not look like us because all of those societies predicate your appearance on citizenship. And sometimes they do it quite literally in their constitution, as does Mexico. One can imagine an intelligible case being made, at least, that, yes, the United States has been an exception to this historically, and you've got this lovely idea of e pluribus unum, and you're trying to bind people together by factors other than their demographic traits. And you know, maybe America already beat the odds by managing to sustain that for so long, but maybe we shouldn't be surprised that eventually it starts to break down, which is the feeling in, in some quarters today. Is that too pessimistic a diagnosis, Victor? Can, can we sustain the, uh, the form of diversity that we've had thus far throughout American history? I think we can. I think what happens is as demography obviously changes, and that, and that usually changes through emigration or differing uh, demographic uh, facts of life by different groups, then it's incumbent upon people not to emphasize their outward appearance. And we're starting to do that again, even as we've never had more integration, assimilation, and intermarriage than ever before. So I think we have two phenomenon. We have most people who are not conscious of how they look, and their families are quite intermarried and they don't they would have to have a dna pedigree to figure out who they are and they just have names that do not reflect your name is john smith or uh, john yee or john lopez it doesn't necessarily always reflect how you're even going to look anymore because of the mixed nature of the american demographic experiment but, but if, while that's going on and is hopeful 
there are others because of this legacy of the last 50 years of identity politics where they find advantage in stressing a particular ethnic nomenclature or cachet. So, and they have to do go to great lengths because, again, we're an assimilated interracial society. And that means that, especially in the democratic progressive movement, where they tend to, to look at your uh, race or your tribe as essential, not incidental to your character, it's, it's, it's putting a lot of stress on the United States because it means if you say you're Hispanic or if you say you are black or African American or if you say you're Asian American, then we are going to consider that in terms of hiring or maybe in terms of admission. And even though you may not feel that way, that you're going to find ways to emphasize and accentuate what you otherwise would not. To what degree can or should uh, public policy factor this in? I, I think, for instance, about immigration, where in recent years there has been an increasing consciousness of the fact that you tend to get the most severe disruptions when a community changes really quickly. And that has led some people to say, well – you know, maybe we've got to limit the number of immigrants, give people time to assimilate. Maybe we need to avoid the kind of ethnic clustering that really works against assimilation. Are, are those worthwhile considerations? Uh, they can be. It, uh, whether we have rapid assimilation usually uh, hinges on two factors or maybe three. Is immigration legal? Is it manageable? That is, the, are the numbers manageable for assimilation integration? And is it meritocratic and diverse? So if you bring in a million people from Oaxaca, Mexico, who have uh, no high school diploma, then they're going to congregate in the American Southwest, and they're going to be among the poor of American citizens, and they're going to need collective rather than individual uh, representation. If you bring in 5,000 from South Korea, 5,000 from Ghana, 5,000 from Argentina, 5,000 from France, and they are all mixed up and they all come legally and they all come with a college degree, then they're going to assimilate and filter into the society in a much more effective way and a much more rapid way. So I think what this controversy is about is not about illegal or legal immigration. It's about finding or returning to a mechanism where an immigrant comes in and contributes to American society and accepts his Americanness first and his tribal affiliations second. You make an observation in your Defining Ideas piece that probably merits some elaboration here. You, you note that one of the defects of identity politics is that it, and I'm quoting you here, destroys individualism, past and present. Explain what you mean by that. Well, when you start to look at the collective rather than the individual, then it really doesn't matter who the individual is. We become just anonymous numbers in a gulag. And I mentioned in the piece that once you say that all Confederates are evil, or especially all Confederate generals, does it matter that you were humane General Longstreet rather than the founder of the Ku Klux Klan, General Nathan Bedford Forrest? Does it matter whether you were a German general and tried to kill Hitler and you were Stauffenberg or whether you were Walter Model, who was a fanatic Nazi who was responsible for war crimes? Does it matter whether you're on the Oregon Trail or the Chisholm Trail and you really tried to save somebody or whether you tried to kill somebody? 
murder somebody if you are going to be stereotyped as a so-called white interloper or exercising white privilege. And what I'm getting at is when we start saying things like white privilege or African-American or I'm Latino, what does that mean? It means that you're part of an anonymous group and your individual characteristics are secondary. Can you be a bad white person or a good white person? Or can you be a white person who's worse than an African-American or an African-American who's a worse person than a white person? But if we, we can't and we're part of this tribe, then you can see that the individual, we don't start to inculcate and value individual character and achievement. It just all becomes part of the tribe. And that there's a historical model that that is to perdition and, and destruction and nihilism. Victor, we've seen a striking upswing in recent years in the intensity of the rhetoric around identity politics. Black Lives Matter, uh, some women's groups, some LGBT groups, many of the most prominent ones are taking a, a kind of revolutionary tone, even though it's sort of hard to imagine that any of them would rather occupy their same demographic station a couple of decades ago. So why is it, do you reckon, that we actually see the rhetoric intensify at the same time that society, by and large, seems to be doing more and more to make them feel accommodated? Well, I think it's largely an elite phenomenon, and I don't want to be cynical, but it has a lot of careerist ramifications. So why does a so-called white person like Ward Churchill put on, you know, beads and go his hair long and say he's Native American because on his credentials, he's not going to get a job as a professor or his publication record is too thin to get tenure. As a Native American activist, he will. Why would Elizabeth Warren say that she was a Cherokee Native American and become Harvard's first Native American faculty member? Because otherwise she's afraid she her own record of legal achievement might not warrant a Harvard billet. And so what happens is we're creating a system of rewards and punishments and people make the necessary adjustments uh, accordingly. And Barack Obama, just to give one example, was born Barack Hussein Obama, but for much of his life he was known as either Barry Sotero or even Barry Dunham, his uh, maternal grandmother's name. But at some point when he got to Occidental, he quickly realized that Barack Hussein Obama well, that might not be advantageous if you lived in Mississippi, because there was still prejudice, perhaps, against the, the proverbial other. It had enormous advantages if you were at Occidental and wanted to go to Columbia and later to Harvard Law School. So what we're doing is we're creating sort of an artificial winners and losers game, and every American is sensitive to that, and they make necessary adjustments by exaggerating or fabricating our sometimes genuinely putting their tribe first and their character or their achievement second. And yet there's hypocrisy in it because certain fields are exempt from this phenomenon. I mean, we might do it in the post office. We, we hire by tribe or we might do it in the English department at Cal State Stanislaw. But I don't think that transoceanic pilots, we do that. We don't do it with nuclear plant operators and we probably don't do it in the National Football League. I don't think anybody says, well, you know, I, I turn on Sunday football and I really would like to see some Asian-American quarterbacks and some Latino defensive ends. And, or a white person comes on and say, you know, my tribe is 70% of the country and yet 
they're only 22% of the NFL. This isn't fair. And yet nobody can explain why we do that. Why is the NFL or why is, is the physics department or why is the Pilots Association meritocratic, whereas other other fields in American uh, in the American workplace are not? I have a cynical suspicion is that somebody arbitrarily has decided that certain fields are more important to our safety and security than our others. Let me, on this front, get you to unpack a phrase that most of us had never heard even a few years ago. Cultural appropriation. This is one of those ideas that really grew out of college campuses, and now it has this sort of wider purchase throughout society. And its essence is that anytime you engage in behaviors that reflect a culture other than yours, you could be a white guy wearing a sombrero to a costume party, or you could be a black woman who owns a Chinese restaurant, that if you do that, you are engaging in a kind of violence, that you're taking something that by right doesn't belong to you. It's a, it's a sort of claim to an, an intellectual collective property. Um, th- there was a time when multiculturalism was the big watchword, but this is something different, isn't it? It's almost parallel monocultures. Yeah, I, I think it's sort of a a tick of the elite white class and the elite university minority class because it really doesn't exist. And by that I mean, Troy, if you have a campus a Shakespearean production and there's a talented African-American person playing Hamlet, you're not going to have a lot of people storm the stage and says, you know, Hamlet is a Danish king and you don't look Danish. They're not going to do it. So it's usually just one way. Cultural appropriation is supposedly white people adopting music or fashion or, you know, thespian roles that are not designed for them, but they don't go the other way. So when I went to the supermarket today and I saw an African-American woman with a dreadlocks uh, and she was with another African-American with a blonde wig, I didn't say you're culturally you're you're appropriating my Scandinavian heritage. However, if I'd seen a white woman with dreadlocks or somebody might have said that to her more likely. Or when two weeks ago I went to the barber shop and the local mascot of a high school, it was a Swedish community called the Vikings, and there was a Hispanic woman that had 49 on her jersey that said Vikings, I wouldn't dare say it. I really resent that. There's nothing in your cultural heritage that represents my Scandinavian uh, heritage and Vikings are very important to who I am, and my I'm a sixth generation, you know, um, American Scandinavian or third generation American Scandinavian, and I don't like what you're doing. However, if I had a sombrero and I said, you know, the Aztec, she might say that to me. So it's sort of a tick of the wealthy and the elite and the university mind, but uh, because it's not reciprocal, and most people don't pay much attention to it. I think. So the final question that I'll put to you. A lot of people who fret over the divisions in American culture today pine for this somewhat elusive thing called unity. And obviously, I think they're pining for a very constrained version of that concept. Americans are free people. There are always going to be a lot of differences between us. But I think what most of them mean by that is something like the e pluribus unum concept that we mentioned earlier, a sense that there we can have an overarching commonality as Americans. Uh, so my closing question for you, Victor – from whence would that come? Is there, in your judgment, some centripetal force out there that could bind Americans together in a way that they presently are and allow them to put aside some of this identity politics? Well, I think we were headed that way. I mean, 
Um, I think that was Bill Clinton's message. I think it was George W. Bush. What happened was Barack Obama did play the identity politics card, and he did it in a lot of ways. He said, whether it was the beer summit, and he started making statements that were not true about the police were inordinately um, harassing African Americans in a, based on the percentage of African Americans coming in contact with the police versus uh, violence shown them. I don't think there was any disparity there, if you look at it that way. Or he said that Trayvon Martin looked like the child, the boy that he never had. I, I couldn't imagine Bill Clinton saying during the OJ trial that um, O.J. Simpson's wife, who was murdered, looked like a second daughter he might might have had. So there was something that Obama it was sort of the temptation to do something to gain power and influence um, that I think really boomerang because it got a lot of people angry, and that was at the heart of why he lost the Congress, Supreme Court, presidency, vast defeats for the Democratic Party at the state level, and I think. Trump represents the backlash against that. And I think had we had an African-American, just to take an example, our colleague at Hoover, Condoleezza Rice, for whom her identity was secondary, then I think that would have been a great healing process and reminded everybody that Condoleezza Rice feels that her African-American tribe is secondary to her achievements and what she can offer as an American. But, um, the other thing is that so-called white America is 70% of the population. So what we, the danger is that white people, quote unquote, especially poor white people who have no white privilege, they are starting to say now, well, when my child wants to go to UC Irvine and they're working class white, they don't get any uh, boost for being of a particular ethnic minority but wealthy white people do because they either have better education or they have tutors or they have influence or they can make a call to as a donor, whatever it is. And yet those are the, precisely the people who are castigating white privilege. And then they start to say, well, if it's okay to have a Chicano students movement, it's okay to have an African-American students. And if all the wealthy white kids in, on campus are confessing to white privilege, which are castigating white privilege, which they enjoy, but they, you know, sort of fob it off on us, then we're going to have our own tribe. And that that's kind of dangerous, but that's what's happening right now. So I think it's very dangerous when you replace class interest with tribal interest, because really where I live out here, I see, I just was talking to some poor white people today who were working out here on the farm. And in terms of the Hispanic, African-American, Asians that I see in our, at Palo Alto, they don't have any privilege. But yet these ancient ossified, calcified rubrics say they do by virtue of their superficial appearance. And most people are not, not accepting that. They don't see it empirically to be factual. So there's a big disconnect. And if we we don't be careful, it's going to be demagogue to the point where there's going to be some strange and scary times ahead of us. All right. Thanks, as ever, to our listeners for tuning into the Classicist Podcast. If you haven't already, remember to pick up Victor's new book. It's called The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. If you enjoy the Classicist Podcast, please rate the show on iTunes. We'll be back with another episode soon. 
for Victor Davis Hanson, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.